Good evening and welcome to our evening service. We're just thankful that Joshua made it today. The snow out there last night and this morning, he said, was just well, almost two, two and a half feet, almost, quite a bit. Quite a bit. But uh, he said they had announced that uh, about two o'clock it would clear up. And he was saying to me, he's just looked outside. There was a whiteout, turned to speak to Esther and turned back and the sun was shining. <laughs> so the plows came, he said, and here he is. Everything was fine. So we're just thankful for that, that he is here. Thankful that you're here as well. It's getting to be a, a cold evening and uh, uh, windy, but uh, you are here and we're thankful for that. Am I praying? Or? Okay. Right, let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you as we have looked at Psalm 1, the one who is blessed forever. And Lord, we know ultimately that is found in your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, what can we say to the one who has rescued and redeemed us, the one who has done all that we could never do? Lord, we have come here this evening to worship your holy name. Lord, for all that you have done for us, continue to do for us day by day, moment by moment, and all that you will do for us as we continue to rest upon your perfect promises, which are yes and amen in Christ. Lord, we rest upon them knowing that you cannot lie. They are our firm foundation, our anchor in the midst of the storms and troubles and trials of life that beset us that toss us to and fro when it seems that the earth gives way. O oh Lord, we lean upon you and find that you do not fall. You do not topple. You remain fast. O oh Lord, that we may trust in you. O oh Lord, we come with many things upon our hearts and minds this evening. And we cast them before you, knowing that you care for us. O oh Lord, we ask that you would illuminate us and guide us by your Holy Spirit as we come to your word, as we praise your holy name, as we unite our hearts together in prayer. O oh Lord, do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we know that there are many among us that are sick, many who are hurting. Lord, we ask that you would give a special sense of your presence to them. O oh Lord, by your spirit, take your word and apply it deep within their hearts and minds. Oh, that they may find that you indeed, as you have said, are a good shepherd. Lord, you walk with us, both through the times of sunshine and, yes, through the valleys of the shadow of death, so that we might fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Oh, Lord, help us, for we need your help. In and of ourselves, we are undone. Lord, I pray for this place. I pray that you would raise up a shepherd for this church, O Lord, as they have been waiting upon you. O Lord, do your perfect work. Call by your Spirit. Lord, bring forth the man that you have set aside for this place. Oh, that it might be a blessing, that your word might go forth in power, that this place may continue to shine as a lighthouse in the midst of a dark generation, in the midst of great need, O Lord, that only you can provide. For you are the bread of life. You are the living water. O oh Lord, what have we in heaven but you? And we wait upon your grace. O oh Lord, continue to lead us. This evening we ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, welcome, brother. The Lord bless as you open the word to us tonight. 
If you do have your Bibles, please open them once again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are probably some of the most well-known passages of the New Testament, being the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that, as Jesus gathers his disciples together and preaches and teaches them from um, the sea outside of Galilee, has probably been used to teach and say more things than any other passage of Scripture. I think this section has been abused so many times and misunderstood by many people. What is Jesus trying to do here in this famous passage? Well, really, the Sermon on the Mount at its very core is Jesus giving a summary of all the law, the prophets, and the writing, what we know as the Old Testament. He is summarizing everything that has come before. He is taking all that was written by Moses and the prophets, And bringing it forward in one package, in one great sermon for the people who are there listening, hanging off of Jesus' every word. Remember, this is happening at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry can really be looked at in as three different sections. The first section that happens in the first two years of Jesus' ministry is him traveling about preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The people coming gladly to Jesus, him teaching and preaching and healing. But then we see the great switch, as it were, in John chapter 6 and verse 66, when Jesus begins to talk to the crowds that are coming to him only so that they can get, 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 receive, receive, receive. They want Jesus to feed them forever. They want Jesus to do every sort of trick for them. And Jesus says, no, I've come for a greater purpose than simply to give you bread. I've come to give you true living manna. And the people begin to grumble and complain. And what happens? The crowds leave Jesus. And then finally, the third section of Jesus' ministry, when he sets his face to go to Jerusalem and to be crucified in that last month of Jesus' life. But here we begin at the beginning Jesus has come out of the desert being tempted by the devil. Just before that, he was baptized by John and the heavens opened up and the voice of the father here is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the spirit came down like a dove. And Jesus has been going about Galilee teaching and preaching about the kingdom. And so seeing the multitudes, Matthew chapter five, starting in verse one. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Let's pray before we jump into the text. Father, we do pray that you would illuminate us as we have just sung. Open our eyes that we may see wondrous and glorious things from your word this evening. O Lord, rebuke us and correct us. Show us our sins that we may repent of them. Lord, strengthen our faith. Encourage us that we may follow after you. O Lord, transform our hearts as only you can do in your spirit, in your power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice first, the multitude is gathering around Jesus as he goes up on the mountain. And he sets aside his disciples. Come, come. He wants his disciples to be close to be the ones who are the main audience of this sermon. 
And Jesus begins, and he begins to exposit the Old Testament. Several texts jump to our mind. I think of Psalm 1 that we read with the idea of blessed is the man, as we'll get into the Beatitudes in a few short minutes. But really the heart of the sermon is an exposition out of Leviticus chapter 19, that great and wonderful chapter about the holiness of God. At its core, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to convict. It's meant to show those that were gathered around Jesus how far short they fell from the glory of the Lord. It showed them how they needed the grace of God. Chapter 5, verse 20, we read Jesus saying, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Be ye perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, as Peter and John will later say. The sermon first and foremost convicts us of our inability to perfectly walk with the Lord our God. Which really, as you read the prophets, that's the core of their message. Repent, repent, turn back to the Lord. Remember the Lord's promises. See how far short you have fallen. As Jesus speaks these words, he's talking to a generation who look holy, but yet on the inside are corrupt. Who are the most holy people as far as those in the crowds would say? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees. They walk around in their long robes with their their prayer boxes on their heads and their long tassels going everywhere, praising the Lord, not touching anything unclean. But yet Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of their hearts. Though their outward actions look good, their hearts are far from the Lord. And we know again and again the Lord condemns an outward Appearance of holiness without a holiness of the heart. Our actions, though looking good, mean nothing unless they come from a holy heart. And whose heart is truly holy outside of the Lord Jesus Christ? As Jesus will again and again bring up on the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds... You have heard it said, you shall not murder your brother. But who has thought, raka, anger in their mind and heart against them? Who has looked upon a woman in lust? All these things, Jesus goes again and again throughout the sermon, condemn us. We are like Isaiah, the prophet, though a prophet of the Lord, though a man who spoke God's word, yet he comes face to face with the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died. And what happens to him? He falls on his face. Oh, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of what? Unclean lips, living in a land of unclean lips. The man who speaks the word of God says his mouth is filthy when he comes face to face with the living God. And if not for the very mercy of God in taking that blood-covered coal from the altar and putting it on Isaiah's mouth, he would be undone. The sermon first and foremost shows us our need of Christ. That is the the focus. And it comes, Jesus' message is what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He wants to show them why they need to repent. Just as John the Baptist was preaching repentance before The heart needs to be right. Until we realize we are sick, we will not go seek a doctor. And even then, we have to know how sick we are. Some of us are stubborn. 
When we're sick, oh, I don't need to go see a doctor until we really think we're on death's door. Then finally we'll consent to go to the doctor. And Jesus, the great physician, is trying to show their need of him. You need the doctor. And so he preaches this sermon to convict them of their sin. But secondly, he preaches this sermon to show them their need of what he will soon provide for them. They need a savior. They need someone who can perfectly fulfill all the law and the prophets. Someone who walks in righteousness. Someone who is that blessed man in Psalm 1. Jesus Christ, the righteous, to which all the law and the prophets point towards. And he is the one that is speaking this message. He first condemns so that he might heal. The message is is condemning. Who can stand before it? To to get a, a mind of how Jesus condemns all within this sermon. Imagine for a second you had a, a, a college class that you were going to. And the professor stands up and says, welcome class. This class, you will have three projects that you will need to complete in the next 30 days. First, I want you to read all of the Encyclopedia Britannica and memorize the whole thing. Secondly, I want you to climb Mount Everest. And third, I want you to find a cure to multiple sclerosis. You have 30 days to do this. And by the way, this is a pass or fail class. Unless you accomplish all three of these things, you will fail. What would you do as a student? Do you have any hope? Maybe one of you might be a mountaineer. And you go, okay, I can do it. I can do it. You get a team together. You go and climb Mount Everest. And you make it back 30 days later, exhausted, but you climbed Mount Everest. And you proudly come to your teacher and say, teacher, I climbed Mount Everest. And the teacher would look at you and go, wow, did you memorize all of the Encyclopedia Botanica? No. Did you cure MS? No, I didn't do that. That's impossible. Fail. Because you have not fulfilled all righteousness. We are condemned again and again and again. But we are also pointed to the one who has life in himself. Only when we are cast down, when we see how bankrupt we are, do we understand the good gift of Jesus Christ, the one who did it all in our place. The Sermon on the Mount is, as we say, law. It condemns. The gospel is not what we do, but what Christ has done for us. It is not our actions that save, but Christ's actions that save. Oh, the goodness of Christ. Not what we have done. It's also one of the reasons the gospel is a great leveler. Have you ever thought about that? It's not what we have done, rich or poor, young or old. As Paul would say, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, male, female. We all stand desperately in need of the mercy and grace of God, and we freely receive it in Jesus Christ. No matter who we are, no matter what we have done, it is what Christ has done for us. So the sermon condemns us. The sermon points us to our need of Christ. But third, the sermon also shows us and calls us to follow after Christ. After we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. After we have received his grace and mercy. After we are clothed in Christ. After we know that we are justified in him. That we are safe in him. That we can lean upon his precious promises. Then we walk forward in the newness of life that is ours in Jesus Christ. And in that we walk and in that we live. And so we finally come to the sermon again. 
as ones who long to be conformed into the image of Christ. If the sermon shows us how far short of the glory of God we have fallen, we then come back and say, what does God require in his perfect standards? What is God's perfect law? Not that we can somehow earn God's favor by doing his law. It's impossible. We can never do that. Jesus has done that for us. But yet, out of love and care for what God has done for us, and yes, by his commandment to us to follow him, we go and obey. Valentine's Day was this week. I hope some of you remembered. I was glad I remembered, and I gave a gift to my wife, Esther. And I gave her a gift, not because I wanted to earn her love. I love her, and I know she loves me. But I gave it to her because I love her. I wanted to see her smile. I wanted to give her the, the stuff that she really likes. And she did. She, she, she got it. And, ooh, ooh, I like this. And so it is in a certain way with us as we follow and obey the Lord. We do it because we want to serve him. Not because we somehow need to earn his favor. God has already given us his favor in Jesus Christ. We serve him. We love because he first loved us. So let's examine this together. And, and a good thing to, to remember as you read through scripture, and what I just said, you can use, um, the, I call it the G's or the S's. The G's are guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. We see our sin, we see the grace of God, and we act out of gratitude for what God has done for us. Or you can start with an S. You can go sin, salvation, service. That sin, salvation, service. You keep those things in your mind as you read through Scripture. They can be a great help to organize and understand what is being said. How does this passage show us our sin? How does it point us towards a Savior? And after that, how does it, how does it help us to serve the Lord with gladness of heart? So let's jump into the first section here of the Beatitudes. We'll start reading once again, chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain. And when he had seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, excuse me, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus begins his sermon, he calls the crowds to attention. He hooks them in. The idea of blessed. Who doesn't want to be blessed? Some of us have very interesting views of what blessing might look like. But the idea of blessing as Jesus uses it here is a word in the Greek that stands for the, the great glory of the Lord. Divine joy, inner satisfaction and sufficiency. It's not happiness as we sometimes define happiness. I've seen some Bible translators that, that work, happy are you if you are poor in spirit. And that kind of defeats what's being said here. To be blessed doesn't always mean that we have a big smile on our face, that we're dancing around or hopping around in, in what we call joy or gladness and happiness. But it's something deeper than that. It's a sense of 
satisfaction and joy that is a foundation amidst all of which life and the storms and troubles and trials can never undo and never destroy. It's a deep-seated peace. The idea of divine joy is a picture of that which God has in himself. God is the ultimate blessed one and the one who can give a blessing. Divine joy, deep satisfaction. And of course, God is the only one that can truly give this. All the things of the world, all will decay, all will pass away, but the Lord remains forever. And only the Lord's word is ultimately true. Even your best friend, who you trust with their heart, might be forced into a circumstance where they have to break their word. They might be super sorry about it, but they still have to break their word. They have to go back on their promise. But yet the Lord is not like that. The Lord is not a man that he should lie. And I've said this over and over. And if you know me, you know this is one of the things I, I, as my wife would say, harp on. And for good reason. The Lord's words are true. We can trust his word. Even in the midst of troubles and trials, God's word remains true. Blessed are what? The poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to not be proud to not be full of self-praise, to see ourselves in Christ, to realize that we are but dust. We are not God. We are not mini-gods. We are a creature, and he is the creator. That's something that constantly we need to be reminded of, for that, in some ways, is the very heart of sin. Sin is doubting the word of God. Sin is rebellion against him. It's thinking that we know more than he does. What does Satan do when he goes into the garden and tempts Eve? Has God said, can't you see how beautiful that fruit looks? Do you really think that you'll die if you eat that? And in that moment, Eve thinks she knows more than God. She puts herself in the seat of God. She is now the creator rather than the creation. She knows what is true instead of God. To be poor in spirit, to be humble, is to realize that we are but dust. What happens in a funeral service most of the time, at the very end, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. There's something important about that. It reminds us that we are here today and gone tomorrow. That our life in the here and the now is but a flash. Obviously, our lives are eternal. We all go somewhere when we die. But yet in the here and the now, it is but a short flash. And even the great kings and conquerors of the earth have turned back into dirt. You can go to the pyramids. Go look where Genghis Khan, Napoleon, the great emperors of China are buried. What are their dirt now? Maybe their bones are being held in a mausoleum, but their flesh is gone. All the glory and might of the earth that they once had is now nothing. Given over to others. I think a great picture is Alexander the Great, one of the great conquerors and commanders that ever lived. Conquered the known world, cried because there was no more land to conquer. And what happened? He died at a young age. And all his kingdoms were passed to his generals who made an absolute mess of it. You know he was a good commander when his second, third, and fourth, fifth in command all are absolutely unable to do anything right. 
but all his glory and pomp given over to others. Blessed are the poor in spirit, realizing that we are but dust, realizing that the very breath we have, the very beating of our heart is because of the Lord. I love Colossians, that great picture of Jesus sitting on the right hand with all glory, might, and power, holding all things together, every atom, every molecule held together by God's glorious hand. He being in charge of all things. And as Jesus will get into later, not a single sparrow falling. Not even a small flower budding. He who holds all things together. Realizing that he is God and we are not. We rest upon him. And especially as Christians, we rest upon his grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. When I am weak, then he is strong. Not in myself do I come before the Lord God, but I come in the name of his blessed son. Even as we pray, what we say in Jesus' name. Why do we say that? In Jesus' name is not some sort of magical formula that God won't hear our prayers unless we use it at the end of them. If we end our prayers and there's no in Jesus' name, God still hears our prayers. The, we say in Jesus' name to remind us the reason why God hears our prayers. Because of what Jesus has done. Realizing that our standing before God is because of Jesus, not what we have done. Once again, it destroys our pride. It puts us back where we ought to be. To be poor in spirit. Realizing we are but dust, we need the grace and the mercy of God, and we flee to him in what we freely receive it. We freely receive it. Henceforth, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why do they receive the kingdom? Because they know that in and of themselves they are unworthy, and so they lean upon the grace and the mercy of the king, and the king gives the kingdom. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Moving on, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. When our hearts are broken, and ultimately when we mourn, have you thought about it as a Christian, we're ultimately mourning about sin. Sin is what breaks our world. In the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, the curse came into the world as the effects of sin. Our ill health, death, destruction, war, famines, rumors of wars, earthquakes, all these things are because of sin. That has entered into the world. These things that cause us to mourn is sin. It is sin. Oh, that we might mourn. Even when we think about friends and family that don't know the grace and the mercy of Christ, we mourn. The effects of sin. Oh, to see that day when Christ shall return and sin shall be no more. Oh, that great and glorious day that we long for, a new heavens and a new earth. Sin will be no more. Do we mourn over sin? Do we mourn over the effects of death and war and disease in our world? Do we cry out, how long, O Lord, how long? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. For the comforting hand of the Lord shall be upon us even as we mourn. We mourn what? But as not those without hope. We say even our loved ones in Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We mourn, but not as others. We have hope. We have those everlasting arms. We know, once again, God's word is true. That God says that this mourning, this effects of sin will not last forever. 
There is coming a day when it will be no more and Christ will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Oh, for that glorious longing day. Even that day that shall come when Christ shall descend with the shout of the archangels or perhaps we shall go to be with him. Because of some sickness or death here and now before his return. But no matter what, we shall see him and we shall mourn no more. For who can mourn in the company of the king? Who can mourn in his glorious company where all the voices sing? I was reading through the book of Revelation recently and I noticed uh, a humorous thing that Revelation, again, it increases in volume as you go along and in a loud voice and in a loud voice and in a loud voice. It just keeps on getting louder and louder and louder as you get towards the end. The cry goes out until it ends with that beautiful, loving gospel call. The spirit and the bride say, come, come and drink of the living waters. Come and feast on and with Christ. Come. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. What is meekness? Meekness is power under control. We find in scripture that Jesus is called a man meek. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Moses was called the meekest man in all the earth. Power under control. I think a beautiful picture of this, if you've ever seen um, a lion tamer rolling around on the ground with their lion, and these things are massive. You imagine that their, their paws, the claws in there could rip them to shreds in a moment. But yet the lion is tussling and wrestling with its master and having a jolly good time. That lion is a good picture of meekness. Power under control. In a moment that lion could snap that man's neck or rip him to shreds. But yet it doesn't do that. It controls its power. It controls its strength. Power under control. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Once again, true meekness comes through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, of following after him, of being conformed into his image. Meekness is not weakness as it is sometimes referred to, but yet we find its great and glory in Christ. Six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As a follower of Christ, you long for his word. Do you long to know him more? Has your appetite for him grown? Sometimes as early believers, when we first hear the gospel and believe in it, do you remember the hunger that we had, the desire to share with everyone what Jesus Christ had done for us? Oh, how we were deep in the study of the word. Oh, how we liked times of prayer and gathering with the saints. But sadly, over time, our appetite wanes. It's fascinating. I went through a, a diet a while back that was removing pretty much all sugar from my diet. And so for a while, there was no more cookies and cakes and ice cream. And at first, it was a hardship. I wished I wanted them so much. And then eventually, I was like, eh, I'm fine. I don't need them. And then Christmas time came. And, and I said, okay, I'm going to break it. And so I had a cookie. And you know what? At first, I didn't really like it. At first, I was like, oh, that's a bit too sweet. But I didn't stop. I had another one and then another one. And after about the third or fourth, mm, I really like this. And I was back to liking my sugar kick. 
And that's not a perfect illustration because you really shouldn't have an extreme strong sugar kick. But so it is sometimes with the word of the Lord. Have you found that? At times in prayer, when we, for whatever circumstances, have fallen into sin, when we have stopped reading the word of God, we have stopped praying, we have gone seasons of darkness, sometimes it can be so hard to get back in. The Bible seems so dry and lifeless. When we pray, it seems that heaven is, is brass. It's concrete up there. The prayer hits the roof and comes back down. Nothing seems to happen. And yet we need to work through these things. Oftentimes we need a brother or sister to come alongside and encourage us and help us through these dark and difficult times. But we keep at it. And what happens as we keep at it, we find our hunger and our thirst return. Now I have to take a drink of water. Thinking about thirst. Our hunger and our thirst return. We begin to desire the pure milk of the word. We long for times in prayer. We want to be with the Lord. We want to be conformed to his image. Oh, that our hearts might have a hunger for the Lord. That we might thirst for righteousness. And notice... As we are hungry, as we thirst, what will the Lord do? For they shall be filled. The Lord will provide. The Lord will indeed feed us. The Lord will strengthen us. The Lord will transform us more and more into the image of Christ. And the Lord will help us as we desire to serve him. Not only do we desire to be turned righteous, but we long for others as well. For they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mm. Those who have received mercy will desire to be merciful. I think seven and nine, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, should really be treated together. There's two things here. They, they flow out of the gospel. In the fact that God has shown his mercy towards us while we were yet sinners. Christ says, for a righteous man, someone might lay down their lives. Your best friend is on their deathbed. You might sacrifice your life for them. But would you do so for your enemy? For him who hates you, who despises you, who wants nothing to do with you and would destroy you if he could? Of course not. But yet that is what Christ has done for us. In our place condemned, he stood hanging on that cross, bearing our sin, the judgment we so rightly deserve for our sin and our rebellion against God. He has shown mercy to us who deserve no mercy in and of ourselves. Such is the love of God towards us. That he shows mercy to those who really shouldn't receive it. But yet we do in Jesus Christ. One of the reasons we need to refresh our minds with the gospel again and again, as we understand more and more the mercy that was given to a sinner such as ourselves, then we will begin to show mercy. Because Christ has given us mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who desire peace. But here's the thing. We talk about peace all the time. You can turn on the television and hear about peace this and peace that. My entire life has been spent, most of your lives have been spent talking about peace in the Middle East. Has it ever happened? No, it has not happened. Maybe for a short period of time, there's been an interlude of what seems to be peace, but there is no peace. Where does true peace come from? Where does true 
peace come from? It comes from reconciliation with God. We were created in God's image. Male and female, God created them, brought to be in relationship with him. God walked in the garden in the coolness of the day with Adam and Eve. They walked with him and they were his exemplar to the world. They were in his image. We were meant to be in relationship and in that there's peace. But yet sin destroys that peace utterly, completely. But yet in Christ, that peace returns. First and foremost, peace with God. We are reconciled with God. We have peace. Before there was enmity, now there is peace. And in the gospel, we also have peace with each other. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the gospel is the gospel of peace. It says, be reconciled first and foremost with God, but secondly, and reconciles us with each other. For in the gospel, young and old, rich, poor, barbarian, scythian, slave, free, male, female, are all, as I said before, what? We are all bought with a price. The same precious blood for me, for you. And in the gospel, we become brothers and sisters. What glorious peace there is in the good news of Jesus Christ that can make those who hate each other brothers. There's a, there's a wonderful church just outside of Jerusalem. It has two pastors. One grew up, was trained as a Jewish rabbi. The other one was trained as an Arab, trained as an imam. They're both pastors now in the same church. Everything would say that these two men should hate each other, but yet they love each other. And they seek to share the good news of Jesus Christ in the midst of of a war-torn and disastrous situation all the time. How could those two become brothers? Only through the glorious grace of God. The gospel makes peace where there was no peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. How will we become peacemakers? By sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Sharing the gospel. The gospel of peace. The gospel of reconciliation. Oh, look to the Lord and live. Oh, look to Christ and find forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation with God. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It is only the grace and the mercy of God that can give us hearts that are pure. Peter, in speaking to the church in Jerusalem after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, after seeing Cornelius and his family become believers, hearing the gospel and believing, he goes to the church in Jerusalem and shares with them what God has done. Acts 15.9, God made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. How can one have a pure heart? Faith in Jesus Christ makes our hearts clean and new. All the gunk, all the garbage is washed away. Even though it doesn't feel like it, even though we still struggle against the world, the flesh and the devil, yet we know in Jesus Christ, our hearts have been made pure, pure in heart. Oh, may we thank the Lord day by day for what he has done for us, for they shall see God. 
Once again, the, the sermon just repeats itself over and over and over again. Jesus is building on the same themes again and again. Oh, to see the Lord. For us especially, on the other side of the cross, oh, to see him who still bears the marks on his hands and side, done for me, done for me. In my place condemned, he stood. And finally, verse 10, Jesus says, As you walk, as you strive to live this way, you will face opposition. Scripture never takes persecution as as a shock. In fact, the, the, the fact that we live in a society today that, generally speaking, we suffer very little persecution is very different from most of history. And Jesus, teaching his disciples, reminds them that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, people are going to persecute you. But if you are persecuted, what? For righteousness' sake. And there's the the key. A couple months ago, I was preaching through 1 Peter here, and Peter says the same thing. He says, if you do righteous works and are persecuted for them, praise be to God. If it's your own folly and foolishness, well, then you get what you deserve. Be careful of that. Sometimes we can feel like we're getting persecuted and it's our own folly that's led us to us. But yet when we strive to walk as Christ walked, we will face persecution. We will face those who stand against us because we live in a society and a time that cannot bear the law of the Lord. Because it goes back to the very beginning of the sermon. Creation versus the creator. No one tells me how I am supposed to live. Nobody says this is right and this is wrong. You can't say that. Whatever I feel is right is right. Whatever I feel wrong is wrong. There's no universal standard because there is no God in most people's minds. And when you stand up and say, no, there indeed is a God of all creation. And this is how he has called us to live to follow after him, we will be called bigoted and far worse things and we'll be persecuted for that. We will have those that will speak ill of us, those who will strive to eliminate us from the public discourse, get us out of whatever thing we're dealing with. And in some cases, as I think of some of my brothers and sisters around the world, will even seek to kill us. My dad, a couple years ago, had the privilege of doing well drilling alongside several local churches in Burkina Faso, Africa. Those villages are no longer there because the Boko Haram Islamic terrorists have come in out of the north and they've burned those villages and destroyed them. And the Christians there have had to flee to the south, even with their Muslim neighbors, for their lives are under threat as well. And seeing that destroyed, and many of them, if they're caught as Christians, know their life is over. They will be forced to say, do you confess that Jesus is the Messiah? And if they say yes, they will be shot. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus reminds us that though we live in the here and the now, There is something something so much greater. Someday his face we shall see. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
Oh, to hear the words of Christ. Oh, to see the wonder of his grace and mercy of what Christ has done for us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. As Jesus continues to preach through the next three chapters, he'll again and again force us to examine ourselves, how far short we fall of God's glory, how wondrously he has fulfilled all righteousness, and how we, transformed by his Holy Spirit, by the work of the gospel, are called to follow him. So let us follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Lord, our sin upon him who knew no sin, the perfect spotless lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. O Lord, condemned in my place so that I might be forgiven. Lord, How can we thank you for these things? O Lord, strengthen our faith. Help us to see anew and afresh all that Jesus Christ has done for us. O Lord, help us to trust your precious promises. Lord, may we not doubt them. Far too often the start of all our sin in our lives comes from doubting your word. We doubt your power. We doubt your promises. We doubt your presence. And Lord, in doing that, we fall and we fail. But oh, we thank you for the plentiful redemption found in Christ. Even that we may confess our sins, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, oh Lord. Lord, help us that we may follow you with all that is within us. Oh Lord, that we might point others to Jesus Christ, our Savior the one who has given us true peace, true blessedness, true joy. Lord, we may say, look, look unto Jesus. Look, there is the Lamb of God. Look, there he is. See the call of Christ. All you who are weak and heavy laden, he will give you rest. The great physician, the prophet, priest, and king, the Lord of lords and King of kings. Father, transform us more and more into the image of your Son. O Lord, for your glory, that your name might be praised forever and ever. We say it in amen. Amen.